to work for 60 hours a week like my dad did. I'm not going to own a home like my parents did. I don't want to I I don't want to spend my money that way. I'd rather work less hours and have time to have fun, fun with my friends to go skateboarding or do yoga or whatever. And I think this is great. I think this is leading us to a better place. We just need to get there more quickly. All right. Well, you have been listening to When the Biomass Hits the Wind Turbine with Jay and Annie Warmke. We want to thank our producer, Adam Rich, and we want to thank you for spending just a little bit of time with us. And as your grandmother hopefully told you, the secret to a happy and sustainable life is... Play nice with others, clean up your own mess, and eat your vegetables because they're good. Okay. Till next time. Bye-bye. Mother Earth will sing and her children will be You can find more information on living sustainably in our unsustainable world at BlueRockStation.com. Good morning and welcome to Film at 11, here on your community radio, KBOO Portland. This week, Matthew of KBOO's Bedtime Story Show, Gremlin Time, analyzes John Woo's epical Red Cliff, while Natalie Lasko returns to chart the eerie modern parallels to Fritz Lang's The Testament of Dr. Mabuza. But first, Jeff Godsell celebrates the adaptation of the Noel Coward play, Private Lives. In 1931, Hollywood was buying up every stage play they could get their hands on to satisfy a talky, hungry audience. The results were decidedly mixed. Many of them were stodgy and leaden and completely uncinematic. Norma Shearer had been in a few herself, such as the interminable The Trial of Mary Dugan from 1929. Maybe that's why she knew a good thing when she saw it. When Noel Coward's Private Lives opened on the London stage and then on Broadway, both starring Coward and Gertrude Lawrence and the young Lawrence Olivier, it was the wittiest thing anybody had seen or heard in years. Shearer pushed MGM to buy the rights for the screen. It didn't take much persuading, since her husband was Wonder Boy producer at the studio Irving Thalberg, and Shearer had some clout herself, having just won the Best Actress Oscar for the Divorcee. Coward was none too keen about what he thought that Hollywood would do to his play, and was uncertain if Shearer really could handle the sophisticated dialogue. But in a statement that proved to be dead on, she said, Quote, I don't care what he thinks. He thinks in theater terms. I think in film terms. It doesn't seem to occur to Mr. Coward that we may both turn out to be right. Unquote. I'm in such a rage. So am I. What are we to do? I don't know. Whose yacht is that? 
The Duke of Westminster's, I expect it always is. I wish I were on. I wish you were, too. Now, don't be nasty. There's no need to be nasty. Oh, yes, there is every need. In all my life, I never felt a greater urge to be nasty. <laughs> and you've had some urges in your time, haven't you, dear? If you start bickering with me, Amanda, I will throw you over the edge, hook, line, and... Just try it, that's all. Just try it. You've upset everything, as usual. I like that. Ever since the first moment I was unfortunate enough to set eyes on you, my life has been insupportable. Oh, do shut up. There's no sense in going on like that. There's no sense in anything. There's no escape, ever. Don't be melodramatic, Elliot. For her co-star, she chose Robert Montgomery, with whom she had shared the bill in far less worthy productions. Strangers May Kiss Anyone? Back then, the studios required their actors to be in six or seven movies a year. Montgomery had served admirably, appearing with everyone from Buster Keaton to Greta Garbo. Perhaps getting this part was his reward for enduring such drivel as Our Blushing Brides with Joan Crawford. Do you want a cocktail? There are two here. A two here? Two. Should we have my two first? Elliot and Amanda are exes. It's been five years since their divorce, five years since the end of their tumultuous three-year marriage, and now they are surprised and mortified to find themselves sharing adjoining terraces at a luxury hotel where they are both on honeymoons with their new and younger spouses. After much sparring and blame-throwing, both Elliot and Amanda discover that they are still hopelessly in love with each other. Shall we get roaring, screaming drunk? I don't think that would do very much good. We tried it once before and it was a dismal failure. <laughs> oh, it was lovely at the beginning. <laughs> you have an immoral memory, Amanda. Here's to you. I tried to get away the moment after I'd seen you, but he wouldn't budge. What's his name? Victor. Victor Prynne. Hmm. The Mr. and Mrs. Victor Prynne. Mine wouldn't budge either. What's her name? Sybil. Sybil? Sybil, yes, Sybil, Sybil. To Mr. and Mrs. Elliot Chase. Heaven pity the poor girl. Are you in love with him? Of course. <laughs> How very funny. How very funny. Don't you anything particularly funny about it? You love yours, don't you? Certainly. There you are, then. There we both are, then. Tell me. What's she like? Fair. Hmm. Very pretty. Plays the piano beautifully. Oh, very comforting. <laughs> and how is, uh, dear Victor? I don't wish to discuss him. Does he know I'm here? Yes, I told him. You told him? Yes, yes. I told him. Splendid. That is going to make things a whole lot easier. Does uh, Sybil know I'm here? No. No, I, I pretended I had a presentiment. <laughs> I tried very hard to persuade her to come with me to Paris. <laughs> What's happened to her? Didn't you hear her screaming? No. She's downstairs in the dining room, I think. <laughs> I'm being grand in the bar. <laughs> it's all very difficult. They determined to run off together now and deal with the consequences later. MGM made the rare move to film a performance of Private Lives with Coward and Lawrence for the cast and director Sidney Franklin of the film to study. Franklin had directed Shear in The Last of Mrs. Cheney in 1929, a film with a few one-line zingers of its own. The wise choice was made not to try to duplicate the British accents of the original players. Good dialogue is good dialogue, and if anything, 
The success of this film version of Private Lives proves that Coward's play does not depend on a cultural placement to be funny. The chemistry between Shear and Montgomery is obvious as they square off with each other. The dialogue is delivered crisply and sharply and without any of the pauses for laughter so necessary for the theater crowd. To my liking, this makes the film version the best version over all the filmed stage versions that I've seen clips of. Elliot and Amanda attempt to rekindle their romance in a cabin in Samaritz, only to discover that all of the old triggers are still there, all the jealousies and petty animosities. Screwball comedies may not have been officially ushered in until later with films like 20th Century, but the ensuing battle between Elliot and Amanda certainly qualifies. Hurling insults and furniture at each other, destroying much of the cabin in the process, Shear and Montgomery resemble an elegant version of Laurel and Hardy. This combination of witty barbs and purely physical comedy make Private Lives one of the most unique and wonderful films of the early 30s. I would say that its only competition would be from those films made by a certain gentleman named Lubitsch. This is Jeff Godsell for Essentials of Cinema, and I'll talk to you soon. Thanks, Jeff, and don't forget to drop into Jeff's website, Essentials of Cinema, for more recommendations. Now, here's Matthew with remarks on John Woo's Red Cliff. From 2008 comes uh, John Woo's epic Red Cliff. Now, this is um, a historic... Uh, action movie and it's set during the end of the Han Dynasty and the start of what's known as the the period of the Three Kingdoms and this is at the uh, start of the uh, third century of the uh, Christian era over in China and we have uh, Wu's uh, production that's there was a similar movie uh, done maybe that same year called Three Kingdoms and it was based on a very famous novel called The Romance of the Three Kingdoms. But uh, Wu's film is a much better uh, movie than uh, that one, which seems to be uh, the typical problem with a big epic movie is that it gets so involved in the battles uh, that we're kind of missing who the people are and the reasons for the fighting. But Wu really pulls it off in this movie uh, Red Cliff. It's like five hours long, but there's no wasted time at all. And it's really interesting of how he balances the spectacle with the interplay between the characters. Now, right off his narrative draws you in as we are first introduced to the villain and how he's manipulating the emperor to let him go and invade these two southern kingdoms, which he's calling traitors. And in fact, he wants to conquer them for himself and then use their armies to turn around and take over the, uh, the dynasty. So we follow him to his attack on one of the first of these southern kingdoms, Hugh. And it's there as the forces are being pushed back and that the army has to kind of sacrifice himself so that the people can get away from the invading army. And within this, we meet the different heroes of this kingdom, but especially we meet uh, Xiang Liu, and uh, he's played by uh, Takashi Kanesino. Um, and he 
is the sort of advisor strategist of this kingdom. And so once they're defeated and are in retreat, he goes south to meet with the other kingdom, East Wu, and he tries to talk with their warlord, uh, Sun Quan, who seems to be indifferent to wanting to commit himself to this. And it isn't until he gets uh, in contact with his uh, Zhang Quan's uh, sort of brother, uh, Zhong Yu, who's played by Tony Leung. And so here we've gone through, we've introduced all these other characters, and finally we get to Tony Leung's character, who's kind of the main hero of this movie, with lots of heroes in it. But then surprisingly, Wu goes on a little bit farther. And at this point, we are introduced to his wife, Kuang Kuo, who is played by uh, Qingling Ling, and here she's like uh, considered the most beautiful woman in the world. And as the story goes on, uh, Chao Chao, the evil prime minister, admits that he's in love with her and that he's mainly fighting it to not only to defeat these kingdoms and kill her husband and take the army for his own good, but he wants to take her as well. So we've got these interesting characters all in play. Why was one kingdom aligned with the other? And then there's like a, a young princess who wants to prove her ability and worth instead of just being uh, passed off as just a, an, uh, a woman. And that's what the, and in Wu's film, even though there's just a couple of women characters, their points, their characters are very crucial to the success of the Allies' eventual uh, defeat of uh, the evil prime minister at the end of this movie. Now, it all gets down to a sort of battle between uh, the Allied forces collected at Red Cliff and the evil uh, Prime Minister's forces that he, with his gigantic fleet, who's like entrenched themselves across the river from Red Cliff and are preparing to overwhelm the uh, fortress. And so the heroes have to come up with a way to uh, defeat this larger army. And so it's very interesting of, of the dynamics of how they come together and how they train. And we meet different uh, heroes and soldiers and the different things that they're doing to try and get this plan together. Now, as I said, the... Uh, the action and the drama are very nicely balanced in this. And so Wu introduces his characters and gets us into the situation. And then we get to a point where we've got that sort of ticking clock. The big army is going to attack that night. And they've got the wind at their back. And if the uh, allies were to try and burn the other fleet out, the wind would just blow the fire right back at them. And so they're just kind of waiting for this invasion. But the heroes start figuring out a few tricks of their own. And at one point, the um, advisor character, Zhong Leung, he has uh, uh, figured that the wind is going to change at a certain point. And it's not going to do that until after midnight. And so they're going to hope that uh, the evil prime minister isn't going to attack before then. And so as they're discussing this, the, the wife, uh, Jiao, she knows that the prime minister guy is in love with her. And so she gets herself over there and she personally distracts the, the warlord and uh, to hold up the attack. And uh, 
it's very sort of funny how this is all done because she's she's doing it because she she can do it because she she's really great at making tea and uh, Chow Chow has always admired her for that and so he's got the whole army waiting to attack but no they're waiting for him and he's like oh it's very interesting how you make the tea and she says well just stay for a cup and she explains how you know it's two boilings of the water and this interesting stuff and he's like fascinated with her and she's using her charms just to stall him out and uh, he's successful but then once the this big attack um happens um they also got to like rush in there and rescue her as well as uh, defeat this guy so you have in movie terms uh this narrative that's on an epic scale but john woo very cleverly brings it down to the human level and we have a really great cast uh, especially uh, Tony Leung, who you remember is in the uh, Marvel film of the, the Ten Rings. He played the father who's, who is tricked into opening up the, the demon porthole in that movie. And so here, it's like a real hero turn. We have lots of great moments, great cinematography where we have these great sort of hero moments where they're kind of posing up against the sky or with the other warriors. And uh, as I said, there's lots of different characters, like in a Chinese film, you have lots of speaking parts. We have also supporting heroes who, who can like just defeat, you know, 50 men at once. So uh, this has a lot um, of a callback to the earlier films that John Woo worked on in Hong Kong, where they had similar stories of a, a man who gets too much power and he's corrupted. And the heroes have to work together, figure out how to work together. And so at the end, to uh, defeat him. And in those sort of movies, which are sort of in the Wushu world, it's like, who's going to control the world of the warriors? But here, this is in a realistic world, a historic setting. And again, like in a good American Western, what's decided at the end is who's control, who controls the land at the end of the story. And so I'm talking about Red Cliff. As I said, this movie is like five hours long but it goes by really well. And it certainly must have had an influence on the later big epic movies from uh, Marvel and how you show the action and you balance that with interesting characters. So you can find this on a two-disc set for the, the long version, which makes more sense than the cut-up shorter version that was originally released in the West. This movie, when it was released in China, uh, made more money than the release of Titanic at that time. So this is Red Cliff, a big epic war story by John Woo, stars Tony Leung, Ching uh, Ling Lin, and Takashi Kaneshiro in uh, the main roles. And so uh, if you like big action movies that are really good dramas, I would recommend this uh, 2008 John Woo epic uh, Red Cliff, which you can find um, on disc or on uh, one of the subscription streaming services. Thanks, Matthew. And you are listening to Film at 11 here on Community Radio KBOO Portland. Finally, here's Natalie Lasko with a detailed look at Lang's The Testament of Dr. Mabuza. 
It begins in a boiler room. Immediately, we hear the overwhelming sound of machinery. The monotonous rhythm is maddening as the camera slowly, almost aimlessly wanders around the room. And suddenly, upon staring at a wall, the camera jolts down to reveal a terrified man, who we later learn is Hofmeister, hiding. Two strangers walk into the room. They are seen talking, but there is no heard dialogue. The characters are completely silent, drowned out by the overpowering noise of machinery. They secretly spot the man and leave. This man soon after brandishes a gun. He debates opening the door and leaving the room. We are soon taken outside where the same man carefully walks down the street. A wooden beam crashes to the pavement, missing him. There are three more strangers at the end of the street. He turns and runs. Two more strangers roll a barrel of petrol off a truck and it explodes. The first five minutes of the film tell a riveting story of suspense, all without sound. Why is that man hiding? Who were the two strangers? Why do they want to kill him? Who is behind all of this? This film is the second of Fritz Lang's Dr. Mabuza trilogy called The Testament of Dr. Mabuza. The Criterion Collection summarizes the film, writing, Locked away in an asylum for a decade and teetering between life and death, the criminal mastermind Dr. Mabuza has scribbled his last will and testament, a manifesto establishing a future empire of crime. When the document's nefarious writings start leading to terrifying parallels in reality, it's up to Berlin's star detective, Inspector Lohmann, to connect the most fragmented, maddening clues in a case unlike any other. The reason I choose to talk about the second film of Dr. Mabuza trilogy rather than the first is because of its particular historical relevance in relation to World War II, the arrival of technological modernity, and the emergence of sound in world cinema. Fritz Lang was an Austrian filmmaker, and the making of the first two Mabuza films saw the rise of the Weimar Republic and fascist Nazism. The first Dr. Mabuza film, called Dr. Mabuza the Gambler, was released in Germany in 1922 as a two-part film. At this time, the Weimar Republic was in full swing, inflation was rising, and Germans were incredibly unhappy with their government. A decade later, The Testament of Dr. Mabuza was scheduled for release on March 24, 1933, at the same theater that hosted the original premiere of the Dr. Mabuza the Gambler in 1922. Three months before its scheduled premiere, Adolf Hitler came to power at the end of January 1933, and on March 14th, he established the new Ministry of Public Enlightenment and Propaganda, headed by Joseph Goebbels. Goebbels soon banned the film in Germany as a menace to public health and safety. As a result, the film debuted in Budapest, Hungary on April 21, 1933, and Fritz Lang escaped Germany July 31, 1933. Essentially, the words of Dr. Mabuza encapsulate as a warning to the public of Nazi propaganda and its imminent doom. One of the pioneering filmmakers, Lang shapes his films with complex narratives and builds them through his masterful command of sound, light, and shadows. Fritz Lang is deemed as the creator of science fiction genre through his film Metropolis and has been coined as the master of darkness by the British Film Institute. In his films, Lang explores human loneliness and the capacity that humans have for inexplicable actions. In other words, he explores the dark moral of humans and a madness in relation to human desire. The Dr. Mabuza trilogy critiques human desire of control, whereby Dr. Mabuza's control takes the form of destruction, chaos, and ultimately his seduction of humankind. 
So back to the beginning sequence of the movie, the boiler room void of human dialogue with no sound propelling the narrative. While The Testament of Dr. Mabuza was not Lang's first film in sound, it was in fact M that was his first. Tension, emotion, and pivotal plot points are delivered in The Testament of Dr. Mabuza with sound as a central force. Given that Dr. Mabuza the Gambler was a silent film, The Testament of Dr. Mabuza officially marks Lang's transition to sound. After the scene in the boiler room, the film bursts with human voice. The screen cuts to black and we begin to hear a man's voice humming. After 10 seconds of this, the screen fades into a sign indicating that we are in the office of a homicide squad headed by Inspector Carl Lohmann. The film then cuts to Lohmann himself behind his desk, standing before a map of the city and proudly lighting his cigar. Blackwell writes in his book, A Companion to Fritz Lang, not only is this sequence an exposition of the forcefulness and centrality of sound in the film to come, but it underlines Lang's utilization of the full capacity of sound image relations. If we follow the sequence without sound, it is not simply that we are left in the dark about what is going on, but we become completely confused by the discontinuities in action and other visual ruptures. Put in another way, in the opening of the Testament of Dr. Mabuza, Mabuza is hiding behind a narrative driven forward by sounds. So who is Dr. Mabuza? The Criterion Collection calls him a criminal mastermind and a madman, but the professor in the film says it best in his own words. Silence, you have no idea. No one has any idea what kind of phenomenal superhuman mind has come to an end with Dr. Mabuza's death. This mind would have lain waste to our own rotten world, which is long overdue for destruction. This godless world, devoid of justice and compassion, consisting only of selfishness, cruelty, and hatred. This mind would have destroyed mankind, which itself knows only destruction and extermination, and which could only have been saved in its final hour through terror and horror. Dr. Mabuza is less of a man and more of an entity dedicated to the destruction of humankind a destruction that cannot be stopped. In the first film, Dr. Mabuza the Gambler, Dr. Mabuza said it best himself, I am the state. One of the most famous scenes of this film is where Dr. Mabuza takes over the mind of the professor. The professor is in his study. The camera pans to all of the professor's paraphernalia, all masks, skulls, or paintings of faces all hyper-stylized, almost inhuman faces, where nothing but the eyes are recognizable. The professor reads the last of Dr. Mabuza's notes out loud. The empire of crime. Humanity's soul must be shaken to its very depths, frightened by unfathomable and seemingly senseless crimes. Crimes that benefit no one, whose only objective is to inspire fear and terror. All of a sudden, an ominous whisper, what we can assume is Dr. Mabuza, continues reading. Because the ultimate purpose of crime is to establish the endless empire of crime, a state of complete insecurity and anarchy founded upon the tainted ideals of a world doomed to annihilation. When humanity, subjugated by the terror of crime, has been driven insane by fear and horror, and when chaos has become supreme law, then the time will have come for the empire of crime. As the voice finishes this monologue, the camera pans to a superimposed image of a horrific, exaggerated Dr. Mabuza. We now know we are entering the subconscious of the professor's mind. We learn that it is through the subconscious that Dr. Mabuza has been transferring his evil commands. 
This new presence of Mabuza embodied within the subconscious is horrifically exaggerated. His eyes have grown large and bug-like. His hair is wiry and stands up on end. His nose appears larger and even more crooked, and his brain can be seen underneath his skull. His presence emulates the human features of the masks and painted faces in the professor's room. This superimposed image moves to the side that the professor is sitting and absorbs itself into his body. Dr. Mabuz has become the professor. The empire of crime will continue. The Testament of Dr. Mabuza is a masterful crime thriller where five narratives happen at the same time. Dr. Mabuza's criminal divisions who do not know exactly who's giving the orders. Tom and Lily's love story. Hoffmeister's descent into madness. The professor and his study of Dr. Mabuza and Inspector Lohmann, who is trying to tie all the missing pieces of a criminal syndicate together. Throughout the film, the piece cuts between these five narratives, and by doing so, the overarching storyline comes together for the audience. Meanwhile, the characters are still left oblivious to what is actually going on. This craftful piecing together of narratives that results in the audience knowing more than the characters themselves, married with the unparalleled camera movements used for sudden visual reveals, and sound as a central point among the entire film, all bring suspense to the movie and creates a masterful work that results in a viewer glued to the screen. Thanks, Natalie. And again, thanks for listening to Community Radio KBOO Portland. Film at 11 will be back next Friday, so until then, keep watching your screens.